my father was here. We had sold everything back in Ireland. The Ireland had went belly up. It literally had nothing. Everyone was leaving. They used to say, last one out of Ireland, turn out the lights. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On today's episode, I interview Stoney McGurran and Jim Girding of Ryan's Daughter Pub. Here's what Betsy Bober-Pallaby, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about Ryan's daughter. What has always stood out for me about Jim Girding, besides what a fantastic human being he is, is that he contacted me when he first became aware of Manhattan Sideways. He was taken by the fact that there was this woman out there walking every street from 1st to 155th solely for the purpose of wanting to make a difference for the small side street businesses. As he said, I had to hear this for myself. And then he offered, what can I do for you? Manhattan Sideways has since held several events on East 85th Street at Ryan's Daughter, and I continue to enjoy simply hanging out with this terrific guy. And not to mention, he has the most adorable son, Henry, who happens to share the same birth date with my granddaughter, Sydney. This Upper East Side watering hole has been around in one form or another since Prohibition and continues to attract people from the neighborhood and beyond. In 1979, Stoney McGurran, a high-spirited Irishman, purchased the bar and gave it its current name. Jim began as a bartender in the late 1990s, but in 2011, he took over running the place. Stoney continues to live on the third floor and is there every day offering his help in any way that Jim might need. Hanging out with the two of them for this interview was pure joy, filled with lots of laughter, as Stoney shared story after story about his arrival to New York from Ireland decades ago, and how he ultimately came to own Ryan's. Can you introduce yourself, Stoney? My name is Stoney McGurn, and I was born in Ireland. And as a kid in Ireland, everybody used to say that America had freedom of choice, individual freedom, and freedom for all. And it had money. And who wouldn't want to live in America with a paradise like that? And my mother used to always say, if you're going to make it in America, you got to get out young. And I got to America when I was 16. And I started working in a a rundown supermarket, actually, on Avenue D and 8th Street with a friend that I went to school with. And it was open seven days a week. And back then it was illegal to be open on Sunday, but he paid off the cops. He didn't pay us very much, though. He paid us a dollar an hour, 10 hours a day, $10. Seven days a week, $70. And after a couple of months, my friend Desmond said to me, we got to do something else. And we started to go to school nights. So we had to go to school four nights a week. So we worked seven days a week, went to school four nights a week for two years and graduated. Became a refrigeration mechanics. I worked in Brooklyn and he worked in Manhattan. And I'd done that for a few years. Then I met a guy, Tom Kelly. Him and his brother owned a fleet of yellow cabs. And one day I was talking to him and I told him, that I didn't know what was wrong with my head, that there was something wrong that every spring I got, and this is so true, I got this feeling where I had to get out of New York, I wanted to see America. And he said to me, 
I used to drive a tractor trailer. And he said, I loved it. But my wife made me give it up because she wanted me home more. So he said, I suggest to you to buy a tractor trailer, get into furniture, and you'll see America. And I bought the tractor trailer and I went to work for a company in Long Island City. The first week we were loading up stuff to go south. And the owner said to me, you have to have a partner when you go south. And he said, I'm going to give you one that you were working with all week. Jimmy Reese was his name. So we headed south. Jimmy Reese was a black man and he was from the south. So one of our first stops was in um, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Fort Bragg. It was a Friday and Jimmy kept saying to me, we got to get in the gates before four o'clock. Otherwise, we're stuck there until Monday. Well, we didn't make it. And we had to drive back to a truck stop called the 401 truck stop. And when I walked into the truck stop, there was three signs looking at me. And the first sign said, restaurant, white only. Second sign, TV room, white only. And the third sign, beds, white only. So Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, I ate in the restaurant, watched TV, slept in a bed. Jimmy Reese, he ate in the kitchen. He slept in the truck with no air conditioning and listened to the radio. And Jimmy Reese was five generations American. And I was the foreigner. And I'm saying, did we get some propaganda back in Ireland on this freedom for all stuff? So for six years, drove a taxi seven days a week. Then went back out on the road with the truck in the summer. So done that for six winters, summer, winters, for six years. So after six years of that, I was in a bar and I met a guy. I knew the guy, Vinnie, Vinnie Johnson. You know, he said, I have a friend. He said, he's quitting the job. He says, as a bartender. Well, I said, you know, I'm trying to figure out whether I should stay cab driving and go truck driving in the summer. I said, I'm thinking of giving it all up. Well, he says, here's his address. And he gave me his address. And I stopped in the following night because I was still driving the cab. And the place was packed at two o'clock in the morning, full up of people. So I get talking to him. And I said to him, uh, what's the story? I said, what's the story, Marty? Ah, he says, too many fights. Knives. Can't take it. Bartending, 10 hours a day, traveling time. All you do is work and sleep. He says, I want out anyway. Come in tomorrow evening, I'll introduce you to the boss. So I came in, met the boss, got the job. I worked there eight years. It was held up 12 times. And I was there for seven. And one night, um, the door opened. One guy over the bar put a gun to my head to the register. And the other guy had a poncho on him, like Clint Eastwood. And he had a sawed-off shotgun. And what they do with a sawed-off shotgun, they cut the front end off, they cut the back end off, and then they strap it to their arm. And when he put his hand out, you see the two barrels. And then when he drops his arm after doing his job, he walks down the street, and you wouldn't even know he had a gun strapped to his arm, you see. So they line us all up, and they rob everybody, and put us all into the bathroom. So we're in the bathroom, and I had something going on in my head where I thought... 
that they would pull the trigger and blow a hole in the bathroom door, which wouldn't happen, but I don't know why. I couldn't get that out of my head that he's going to blow a hole in the bathroom door. So I get all the way back in the bathroom. So now before I go on with this, there was an Italian immigrant, an immigrant like myself, Tony, and he had bought a candy store across the street. And at 10 o'clock, he'd come in to me and he would treat himself to one shot of Johnny Walker Red. That was his treat before he got on the subway. And he had no safe and he had no credit and he had to bring his money home with him and he'd bring it back in in the morning. So now we're in the bathroom and we are perspiring. There's so many of us. And Mr. Austin yells out at the top of his voice. He says, Now listen here. If you're on a ship, the captain is the last man off. But we're in a shit house, and Stoney is the first guy out. <laughs> So I push out, I have to do what I'm told, I'm the, <laughs> the captain, and I push out, and I go on my knees to push the door out, and the door opens, and who gets thrown in on top of his only Tony? And he's white, because he has got such a scare. The poor guy, the blood had drained out of his, to his toes. He was as white as the Casper of a friendly ghost. He walked in the door, and he walked into the double barrel shotgun, you see. Poor guy, I felt so bad for him. So I left there after eight years and I started working downtown and I started looking for a bar and I wanted a corner building at all costs. You know, I was going around for three, four years and I couldn't find one. So a friend of mine called me, Mike Cardi, he owns Rosie O'Grady's and he said, I know of a place up on the Upper East Side and he said, I know it's not what you want. He says, but, and the words he used was, he says, maybe you can just get your feet wet, he says. <laughs> so he must have planned I was going to own more bars. So I came up and I bought it. And I got it the place. And I wanted a restaurant because I thought it would bring in a better clientele, you see. At least stick-ups and all that. So now we made steaks, burgers, all that. And a guy told me to do it for two years. So we'd done that for two years. Then I changed the whole thing over again and got a French chef, put a big divider in, separated the restaurant from the bar, got bus boys, waitresses, guys on the door, hello, how are you? And two years of that. And it did okay, but no, nothing great. And then I switched and I went back, back to the steaks and burgers again. Two more years. Then I said to hell with it. Got rid of the kitchen, put in a pool table, I opened it up. I was working. And the first night I worked, I took in $69. And I called my wife and I says, Muriel, I think we'll be leaving 85th Street. If this doesn't work out, I says, I'll be work looking for a job. And two more weeks went by. Now, I should explain this the best I can. At that time, the Upper East Side was really jumping. And there was a few bar owners to get business rolling. There was a lot of college guys. And they were going around looking for a percentage of bars. And if you give them the percentage, they brought all their friends in. They approached <laughs> me, but I didn't go for it. 
because they wanted to fire everybody and bring in all their own guys. And I said, no, I said, the people I have working for me, I like them too much, I won't fire nobody, I wouldn't, didn't go for it. So about two more weeks went by, and on a Sunday night, I'm sitting there looking at the walls, and in walked five guys, six guys actually. There was one guy, and he seemed to be the boss. And they didn't order a drink, and college guys. Now, I never met them, and they never introduced themselves. But this one guy is doing all the talking, and he's looking, he'd say, well, he was doing better salesman than me. He would say, what do you think? It's beautiful. Jesus said, I think it's new. It's brand new. Look at it. It's gorgeous. And they went around the back and up. And the following Thursday, there was about 60 people in the bar. And Friday night and Saturday night. And then within two months, I had five bartenders. Now, I'll never know if them guys spread the word because they didn't look for anything from me and I never met them and never do know that, don't know the who they are. And the lines came so bad that it was to the corner. And you had to let, five had to be let out before you let five in. That's how packed it was. And that went on for about five years. Um, and what was this building when you... It, this building was a bar. It was a bar. Yeah, it was called the But old, you gutted it. it. It was, oh yeah, it was a dive. Literally a dive. Uh, I couldn't believe it when I came in to look at it. The sewer line was coming down through the building in the middle of the bar. And you know what they had? They, were, they had put in clay that hardened around the sewer line. And they had two cats and they used to put milk in this little hole, and the cats is drinking out of it. You wouldn't see it in Leitrim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a capable place. It had to be gutted. Okay, okay. And um, when you... And it was a German place before that. Mm -hmm. German. And um, But it was Irish already when you... The, the, the yeah, dog was about... Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, When I got it, and he had bought it from a German. Yeah. I understood that the German was a Nazi, and they used to have meetings here back in the 40s, Nazi meetings. And the ironic thing here is, before that, this building was a synagogue. Wow. That shocked me, that it was a synagogue. And then the Germans, the Nazis are holding meetings, at, you know, yeah. 20 years later. Yeah. yeah. Do you know how old the building is? Oh, it's over 100 years old. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So, Stoney, I also wanted to ask, especially because you got to travel all over the country, what kept you coming back to New York? I had a friend I went to school with, and he lived in San Francisco. We left Ireland about the same time. He went to San Francisco to an aunt, an uncle. And his uncle was the head of the Carpenters Union out there. And he, when he retired, Jim McParlin was his name, he got the job. He became the head of the Carpenters Union. And... Uh, I used to stop with him when I'd be in San Francisco. And a beautiful town, beautiful. And I did think of setting in, because he had me all set up if I wanted to get a job and work out there, you know, because of him being the head of the union. Uh, but I landed in New York. I had some family here. And then uh, New York, I became it, you know. And I like Manhattan especially. I do kid with people. I don't even want to get deported to Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn is a nice place now though isn't yeah. it oh wow do you still yeah. love New York even despite how much it's changed 
Oh, yeah. I, well, I'm, I'm old now, so you can't change much now. You know what I mean? How many years are left? Three or four, maybe five. Can you tell me about your wife? Muriel. I, I met her in Dublin on a visit. We used to go over there with the police and little pipe band. And uh, I met her through them. I met her in, I think, 69. 69. And she came to live here in 80, 81. And she... I hate dates like this. I don't even know. Someone asked me when my mother died. I said, I have no clue. I have not a clue. I said, I don't like them dates at all. I don't. How long would Muriel be dead? Well, I was trying to think. I'd say it's outside of uh, 10 years. Had had yeah. we taken over? Had you? Yeah. You oh, had, right? So we're think, coming yeah, up on yeah. the end of 10 years on the lease. So, 10 years. Um, you know, there is something to... Um, uh, what your parents do that you will do, as the same monkey see, monkey do, you know. Um, I have no uh, interest in going to graveyards or pe- like wakes or any of that stuff. And I, I do recall as a kid, I'd be about seven years old, and m- we had a shop home. And my mother was either working out on the farm or in the shop, so she never left home too much, you see. But there was one funeral she went to. Uh, as a kid, it actually scared me. I'm standing at the shop, and this hearse goes by, and he must have been, or he or she must have been of importance, because they had four black horses and the horse-drawn hairs. And you could see the coffin inside through the glass, you know, and as a little kid, you're looking at it, it's scary, you know. But my mother went to that funeral, and she had me with her. And when they dropped the coffin down, she takes me by the hand, and she walks behind the church, and she says, that's where uh, your grandfather is buried. <laughs> that's her father, you see. And then she changed her mind, and she went, no, I think it's that one, she said. <laughs> and I never remember her being at a funeral before or after that. You know? And years later, I said to her, I said, Mom, I said, everybody in Ireland, when people die, they always wear a black band in mourning for a year. And I said, I never seen you with black bands and I never see you go to wakes or funerals. I said, how come? Oh, she said, listen, son, you treat people right while they're alive. You don't need no black bands or go to graves. And that kind of like stuck with me. I... And I, I don't even remember when anyone dies, you know. I don't like that dim dates anyway. So when you ask me what Muriel died, I <laughs> And did she help you run the business oh, here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was here when... The, she was here in the hard times. Yeah, when the hard times. The hard times being when... No money, nothing. It was, you know, as I said earlier, change yeah. and change and nothing, nothing. What yeah, years she were... She must have loved me. She didn't leave. Usually people <laughs> run out when the money goes. As they say, you know, when poverty comes in the window, love flies out the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, should we jump to Jimmy a little bit? So, yeah. Jimmy, can you introduce yourself and let's talk about a little bit more about how you got involved and oh, and the, yeah, yeah, and the business and yeah. So the name of the bar now, Obviously. yeah. <laughs> um, and then what happened after you took over the bar from Stony, or and how uh, you took yeah, over? Yeah, what happened? That's still happening. Yeah. So my name is Jim Gerding, and um, I'm uh, I guess the current owner of Ryan's daughter, and uh, that all came to be. 
a few years ago, but um, I first came upon Ryan's daughter as a customer, and I moved into the neighborhood right up the street. I lived in uh, 207 East 85th Street, which is just a couple blocks up the road. And uh, when I graduated college, I did fairly well, but I didn't really have any idea of what I wanted to do. I went to New York for much the same reason, I guess, that Stoney did. I was filled with some sort of idealism that, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, I suppose. Not just America, but in New York. And we've all heard that expression before. And uh, I had an inkling in college that I wouldn't want to go the normal route of the career counseling and and things that uh, graduating seniors would have done in my generation in college to line themselves up with work. So I, I more or less lined myself up with the apartment first. And uh, that apartment came at 207 East 85th Street. So the first bar I visited long before I moved in, actually, because my friend and uh, future roommate already had an apartment in that building. We came down to Ryan's Daughter. It was the first bar I really hung out in uh, properly as a New Yorker, as having moved here. And that happened a year before I actually moved here. Um, there's a lot of kismet in my story with Mr. this Mr. Wife here. Yeah, yeah, and that's <laughs> what I'm leading into now. <laughs> so I met my wife here, um, uh, and she was a customer, and I was a bartender. And, you know, when I think back on it, I feel like I must have been here 10 years when I met my wife here. But I had probably only been working here about a year, maybe two. Um, she's been with me uh, uh, a long time. We met in uh, June of 2001. So there you go. And I started working here in 1999. But just to backtrack a little bit, I did find a regular job. I was working as a recruiter in 1999 in Midtown in a men's warehouse suit going up the elevator and riding in the subways and whatnot. And I didn't like that at all. So uh, one day I just quit that completely. And I got a real estate license to rent apartments. I figured that would be a good way to at least make ends meet for now. And it was until, you know, I found that I wasn't too motivated by money. And so I wasn't going to work the real estate hours. You know, you could never take a day off. You couldn't, you know, you never know when you might rent an apartment and that's that. And as a result, I was spending more time at Ryan's Daughter. And I was getting to know Linda and hearing about the Irish and bartending. And this was all starting to make great sense to me because, you know, and thank God I walked into Ryan's and fell in with Linda because she was, you know, of, of good people. And in the regard that they, they always viewed bartending and having a bar more like a, a craft. And when I met Stoney, I found it was more than that. It's, it's more like a farm. You know, you you, you got to be there and you're working. You don't know what you might have to work on that day, but you just got to keep at it and keep doing it. But um, it's a far cry from a bartending shift that you might have found maybe on Second Avenue um, or in a busier bar at the time. See, the, the time Stoney talked about in the 1990s when this place had a line down the avenue, by the time I came in 98, 99, that had kind of left Ryan's the same way it came. No real explanation, but no real long lines. Still a great bar, well-loved, a lot of loyal regulars, but it wasn't that kind of store anymore. Um, there, were, there were two bartenders and a daytime bartender, and uh, one of them, Linda, well, I, 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 I just stayed on. I'd go get ice from the basement. I'd sweep the floor and I'd talk to her uh, until she gave me a job or it got me to get a job through Stoney. I've been here ever since and I worked as a bartender here up until uh, Stoney came to us uh, and, uh, you know, we made that switch. 
Um, at the time, uh, Mick Malamphy and I were uh, bartending. We were the main nighttime bartenders. And there was one daytime bartender that we call uh, Larry Agro. His name is Liam. And somehow he got a name called Larry. And then on top of that, Agro, which just means aggravation, you know. Um, and so we'd all call him Agro. But that was it. And the after hours drinking down in other bars after we'd close up here really taught me a lot more continually about what the craft of bartending is. And I really feel very lucky and always have that I fell into this. But the kismet part of it is as a bartender at Ryan's Daughter, I started, uh, you know, getting comfortable. Like I said, I felt like I had been here quite some time when Katie, uh, my, uh, uh, you might remember her from earlier, uh, I think that she was, uh, she was a customer and ended up, I was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, but when I was about 10 years old, my father was transferred to Hawaii. He was an accountant. And uh, so I grew up in Hawaii. And uh, it turns out that Katie, I saw her ID when she opened up her wallet to pay for a beer one night. She had a University of Michigan ID. So there you go. Well, right in there as a bartender, I had my first line. Talk about Michigan. There you go. So we're chatting her up. And, uh, and she's playing pool with her friend, also from Michigan, at the pool table in the back. And they just come up for the beers. Usually it was the friend who'd come up and order the beer. But so that's that's kind of how we met. And I knew that she was from Michigan until one night she came up with a different friend and they sat at the bar for a while. And over a crossword, we got to know each other. And it turns out that she spent the first year of her life here on 85th Street. Her parents had an apartment down towards East End on 85th. And not only that, but they left New York when she was about 10 years old and moved to Michigan about the same year that I left Michigan and moved to Hawaii. Then being in Hawaii, I just wanted to explore other parts of the world, and uh, I came out east for college. And then I, after college, as I said, I met this guy, Chris, who lived in 207 East 85th Street, and uh, I started living there, and here I am at Ryan's Daughter working. You heard my side of the story. Katie graduated University of Michigan, and her and her friend, Brooke, who was the one playing pool on those early days, got an apartment at 207 East 85th Street. And I said, no kidding, that's the building I lived in, no kidding. So anyway, I kept her out late and took her to one of the after-hour joints, you know, and had a few beers with her and all these Irish bartenders. Then convince her, I don't know if I can say this now, we're married long enough, but I, to go home with her. So we went back to 207 East 85th Street, walking up the stairs. I knew that we had lived in the same building, but I had no idea that the apartment that we'd be going into was the one previously rented by my friend who had gotten us an apartment in that building as well. In fact, she has Polaroids of all my friend's stuff when her and her roommate were looking for apartments. So I stuck with Katie because it's a good story. And uh, we're, we're married now, and, uh, and we have a boy named Henry who's uh, about eight years old. Another interesting story, and it seems that Stoney and I were meant to stick around together for a while, I think, is that when Stoney offered to, you know, hand the bar over, I guess is the way we'll say it, um, it came as a severe shock. We were trying to get pregnant and uh, having some difficulty. And uh, we did IVF once and it didn't work. And we did IVF the second time. And we were waiting for the nurse to call home to see if Katie, if it had worked, if Katie had become pregnant. The phone rings and it's Tony and says, I'm going to need you guys to come in. Meaning Mick and I to talk about 
something, God knows what. So we just did. We had never been called in before. And I thought the worst, that's my take. I just worry immediately, you know, the stools will be up on the bar, we'll be out of a job or something. And uh, 15 minutes later, we got a phone call that Katie was pregnant. <laughs> so the same day that my life changed here around the bar and what I'd be doing here, it changed drastically knowing that, that Henry was on the way, right? Um, and so it, it was a bit of kismet all around and it worked out very well. Um, I think it's not been easy all the time, but I often tell people that I don't go to work. You know, I have no separation between my work and my life. And Stoney, I think, has always been that way as well. We, oh, you, you wake up, you, you, your work is your life. There's no real shut off. Maybe if you were, when you were doing jobs like refrigeration, yeah, you knew that. you were I, at work. But I never did like a nine to five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like nine to five. At least you can get around, do this, gone, do something. Else. Yes. It's, and I'm, I'm, I'm the same. And I think yeah. Stoney and I got to know that about it's not really train. working. No, it isn't. You know, because I will say I tried to impress Stoney as much as I could uh, as soon as I met him. Um, but it's hard to impress a man from Leitrim when it comes to work. I'll say that much. <laughs> Leitrim, Ireland, it's known in a, in a way I've heard from other Irish. And I could be wrong here because yeah. the Irish talk about themselves in a whole different way. Yeah. Even within the counties that they're yeah. from. Like yeah. the south of Leitrim might be different from the north of Leitrim. That's true. And, uh, That's but true. one thing that is respected about Leitrim is the amount of work that would be done. Jim, I'm curious what... What exactly it was that sort of pulled you in here and made you stay? What made you want to be here and to, to do this? And, you know, especially when you got the call the same day that Henry was on the way. Right, Henry? Is his mm, name? That's right. Yeah. 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 Then yeah, when we found out you, Katie was Right. Pregnant. And yeah. the timing was so it, it was perfect, but hard, difficult. Um, mm. What caused you to make the decision to stay? Yeah, that's a great question because I had a decision to make. I uh, I thought that I would might become a teacher or something. Uh, I was working, uh, getting a master's at NYU at the time and uh, was thinking about getting going into the PhD program as well. Um, and so uh, I thought that, you know, again, very idealistically, I thought that might be a good life. Come to find out, uh, it would have been a terrible life for me. Um, uh, stressful. And, you know, you end up going to meetings and uh, you never get to work on your own stuff and you rarely get to teach. I mean, the state of uh, professors and in our in the university now, it isn't like you, I imagined it would have been. So I made the right decision, I think. Um, but why did I make that decision? I, I mean, I had a professor once who said, never let life just happen to you. And I find that that's good advice, but life has just happened to me many, many times. Those most important times of my life, they just happened. And I just went to work. I just went and did what needed to be done next. I don't think I sat around too much thinking about where it was going to go. Um, so retrospectively, I can answer that question and tell you why I stayed on. But there would be no truth to it into why I did at the moment. It was certainly only thing I had. And that's what was going to work. Uh, my wife's a school teacher. Uh, the, uh, the time that I was able now to spend with a newborn baby uh, was huge uh, because, you know, I was still working as a bartender and I had different responsibilities, but at least I could take a little money out uh, 
and not work quite as hard behind the bar, maybe. Um, so that's probably why I did it straight away. But Ryan's daughter, and I think this is where you're going with this, is always had a certain special kind of charm to it. And it's what I found um, very similar to that guy Stoney told you about who walked in one day to an empty bar where the owner himself is behind it thinking he's going to have to close up shop and figure out something else to do. That guy is, I've seen that on the faces of many, many people who walk in this place. Um, and it's because whether they say, I didn't know there were bars like this anymore, or, you know, or you throw words around like authentic. I mean, I think those all miss and I've never been able to really clarify what it is. Maybe it's the fact that it is on a side street and it's off the avenue, which is precisely what Stoney didn't want. He wanted a, a big building on the corner. Um, and, and he's right. You know, if you're going to do good business in the, in the bar business, it'd be nice to, to have that. Um, certainly you want to do volume. That's what you see being built nowadays nobody would open this store up again uh the way that it is it's just not the way bars are, are are being built today um but yet there's something about ryan's uh, and uh, in all my bartending years it was something that i became more and more proud to be a part of um even though i couldn't place it the real test has come in becoming a quote-unquote owner i've never liked the term anyway you know um i'd like to just go about the work that needs doing um, because I guess I'm afraid of it too. You know, if uh, I didn't build the place, it wasn't my idea. You know, I didn't name it. Um, I, I had no idea what it was going to be. But then as Stoney told you, he didn't know what it was going to be either. He tried this for two years, then tried another thing for two years, constantly chasing it, you know, probably listening to people or, or coming up with ideas of his own, what might work, what might not. And his busiest time in this business, he doesn't even know really how it happened. It might have been those guys bringing promos in. It might not have been. It might have just clicked. But boy, did it click. And uh, it's now up to me just to maintain in this new world that we live in. The bar that we have downstairs isn't necessarily the new fresh thing. Uh, certainly not. And the balance is trying to find how do you stay what you are, and then proceed in the 21st century. When Stoney opened up the bar in 79, I'm sure he didn't have to worry about providing Wi-Fi to his customers or the internet connection going out to during a presentation in a reserved party space on the second floor. These are things that cause me nightmares. Now, they're not sawed-off shotguns. You know, so it's, it's not work. It's not concrete, and it's not getting robbed. But it takes a lot to uh, to run a store like this today, and I'm shocked every day how little of it actually has to do with running a bar. You know, very. It's always something else. What are some of the specific ways that you have adjusted the way things work around here to the 21st century, if uh, anything? But I mean, yeah. well, the Wi-Fi. Besides the Wi-Fi. Yeah, besides Wi-Fi, not much. And my customers will attest to it. Uh, this place has kind of got a bit of charm now because people could do consider, oh, it's just Ryan's. You know, nothing works quite right. And uh, and my bartender said that to me the other day, and I was like, don't please, I get it, but don't say that to me because it's it sounds a little insulting. Uh, but I, you know, I'm just you know, I'm not prideful. It's just hard, you know. It's like running a running a farm, you know. And uh, we we try not to do any of that. 
that. When we took over, we upgraded the TVs a little bit. Uh, or actually, Stoney did that before. Um, he's been awfully generous in that regard, too. But um, we can't change this into something that it doesn't want to be. And Stoney's tried so many things. You know, he's tried to do the lunches and he's tried to do brunch up on the second floor. And he's uh, tried to be a sports bar. And, um, you know, I'm not even sure what we are today, but uh, I think the winner is just uh, the personalities that come in and out of the place. And what makes Ryan's Ryan's is, is that it is being looked after and supported by, and I bring the current bartenders and all the people that have had an opportunity, so many that have worked behind that bar, that really get the idea that this isn't just a business, that it is a, a you know, a, a bit of a, I hate to say it, I laugh at myself saying it, but a bit of a home to a lot of people uh, who come in and out, or something unexpected anyway. I think that the wording that you used when Manhattan Sideways came and did our interview was that it was an extended living room, which it does feel that way. It's, it's cozy and it's really welcoming and you can't make that up. It, no. it just has to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's my danger is I often look around because you spend 20 years in the same place and you look around and you notice probably too much and you go and you get an idea that you're going to change something when it's only you that's been looking at this thing and it was fine the way that it was. And then you're like getting pressure, oh, well, maybe I could make more money out of it or or maybe be more successful. And you go and change and no, that doesn't work at all. So really the test is holding back and just being true to yourself. And and yeah, your extended living room, I hope that all the customers come in and feel that. But I have friends who are opening nine, ten bars in the course of ten years, you know, and uh, not too many of them now. But I have one friend in particular who's done it. And I've often gone to those friends and family openings and uh, reflected, like, what am I doing? And you walk in and it's just beautiful. They brought an aesthetic to to the bar. You know, I won't get too into it, but it really is beautiful. Well, then I went into them when they were doing and when they were open, not the friends and family. And it didn't matter. All the work they did, you couldn't see it. The place was so full of people yeah. that it didn't matter what the chairs looked like or what, you know, the napkins. What they did brought them in, though. But they did bring it in. And what you did brought them in, too, yeah, I guess, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But atmosphere is that for a bar owner, 100 people in a cow shed will do just fine. <laughs> Um, I would love to hear you both talk more about the customers and the kinds of people that you see coming into the bar. Stoney's got a great story well, about a customer. Past. Your early customers, Muriel saw walking a dog. Oh. Uh, oh, no, Adrian. you did tell him you would never mention that again, didn't you? Uh, Wasn't that part uh, of the story? Uh, Adrian. Adrian was his <laughs> name? Adrian yeah. was his name. Yeah. And um, He lived he, in the neighborhood. Yeah, I'm, uh, Muriel is actually bartender at the, the, that night. And she was a waitress in most of the time. But I'm a customer, I see, and I'm drinking with this guy. I had met him down at the river, and he had two dogs, uh, Irish setters. They're big red dogs. And we get talking. And he said to me, are you from the neighborhood? I said, yeah, I have a bar up on 85th Street, Ryan's daughter. Oh, I pass it, he said occasionally. I never go in. Are you there at night? I said, yes. He said, I'll drop in to see you. So he was a big guy, big, tall, young, young guy. So um, he came in, and I happened to be here. So then he started coming in more or less as a regular, you saw, and him and I would be drinking. So one night we were having a drink, and we get talking. Some guy 
two, three days before that, had jumped off the George Washington Bridge. And he says to me, I jumped off the George Washington Bridge. <laughs> I says, you jumped off the George? Yeah, he says, I'm the only one that jumped off it and survived. I said, I find that hard to believe. He said, I'm in the Guinness Book of Records. Well, I said, I happen to have the Guinness Book of Records. I said, Muriel, please, would you give me the Guinness Book of Records? He gives out the Guinness Book of Records, and he flips, and he finds the page. There he is. So I said, that's your name? I said, listen here. Don't feel bad, I says, but I really don't believe this. I have to see your license. So he put his hand, he pulls out his license. Sure enough, there he is. I says, Adrian, I said, I have to know, how did it come about? Well, he said, I have an aunt lives in Jersey. And every Sunday, I drive my father and mother over the George Washington Bridge to Jersey to visit her. And my father and mother sits in the back seat and they argue from the time they get into the car until they get out of the car. And I tell them, you got to stop arguing. And he says, they never do. So one Sunday evening, he said, I just can't take it. And I said to them, if you don't stop arguing, I'm going to stop the car right here in the middle of the bridge and jump off. Well, he was a double So he hits the brake, throws it in park, opens the door and runs and jumps. <laughs> well, I fall down on the floor laughing. I think it's fantastic. And he said that he swam to the other side and a guy from some church, he said, was walking and pulled him up the cliff. Well, I said, fantastic, fantastic. So anyway, we were talking. <laughs> How could, I, I said to him, yeah, I said, listen here, I said, did you ever drive him anymore on a Sunday evening? Yeah, he says, I drive them, he says. I said, any arguments? No. When he'd come in, you see, and I'd have a few drinks, I couldn't wait to introduce him. Oh, jeez, this is my friend. Jumped off the George Washington Bridge and I'd have to get into this rhythm. And he didn't come to me. I guess he thought it would do no good. Mm. And he went to Muriel. And Muriel comes to me. And Muriel says, Adrian came to me and asked me to speak to you. And he told me, he says, Muriel, that's my past. I really do want to forget about it. If you can ask Stoney to stop talking about me and the George Washington Bridge. And I never mentioned it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I never <laughs> did mention that. I never did mention yeah, it again. I think that's a terrific story. And, you know, to bring it back to, to about uh, customers at Ryan's Daughter and what, what might bring them in, you know, there's a lot to be said for allowing people just to, to be themselves and be here for whatever reason it is that's bringing them in. And if it's the camaraderie and the feeling of a living room, that's great. Um, but uh, Stoney exemplifies that, too, in his ability to... Uh, 
you know, see the fun in all of it and uh, and also to back off. And uh, great lessons. I'm learning a lot right now sitting here. But I, I, I think a lot of the customers that come in here appreciate it for the ease. Uh, they don't have to be somebody else. I don't know about you, but when I moved to New York City, I thought I had to go buy new clothes. Do you buy? You have a story about shoes that you bought or something, right? You well, didn't want to get them That was when I was wet. only making a dollar a day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, at the I mean, grocery and I, store. I'm only 17 years old. Yeah. And there was a manager in the store, an old Irish guy, and he said to me, he said, you should go up to 14th Street. Of course, it's right close by anyway. And uh, he says, uh, floor shine. Floor shine shoes. He mm -hmm. says, they're the best shoe. And back then... Quite expensive, for, well, especially for a dollar an hour guy. $25. So I decided to save enough. I uh, went in and I bought the floor shine shoes. And I walked out of the store. And I made the mistake of leaving my the old ones inside. They were wore in them. And it started raining. Oh, I says, no good. Well, I was used to going barefooted at home anyway. I said, to hell, I ain't getting my new shoes wet and I took my shoes off and I bought them on the mic on and I went, <laughs> I went home barefooted <laughs> with the shoes under my arm. <laughs> I was loving my shoes. <laughs> under the arm. <laughs> under yeah. my arm. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, you moved to New York. I went to Banana Republic and I bought black clothing because I thought in order to get in somewhere, I had to look a certain way or act a certain way. And um, then I ended up just coming into Ryan's daughter every night because of the Irish girl behind the bar and because of the uh, the ease with which uh, I could spend a couple of hours. Um you know, and we don't offer much at Ryan's. I tell the bartenders this. We offer you as a bartender. You're what's being offered at Ryan's, the bartender. You're the host. You're letting people come in and enjoy themselves. But, you know, there's not much else. And getting back to the uh, technology aspect, you know, we, we I don't want to play us down too much. We do our fair share of uh, cool stuff. But uh, I think it's all in the personality. And I think you can see where we get it from. Anyway. How how do you do your hiring and what do you look for in oh, in your team? Are you looking for a job? <laughs> I'm always looking for a bartender. I'm always looking for a bartender. And uh, Stoney and I talk about this quite a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, you want to be um, obviously the, the most obvious things um, uh, is what Stoney already mentioned is initiative. Uh, you know, you just got to we can't tell you what to do. You just got to come in and do it. I mean, certainly the training helps and all that stuff. But unless you realize that the job isn't serving drinks, um, you're not going to you're not going to get it. The bartender you're looking for is often a, a real good talker, but real good talkers can go either way. Some guys think they're real good talkers, like car salesmen. Like, I can talk to anybody. Well, to talk and walk. Yeah, yeah, talk, yeah, yeah. Talk and walk. Some guys talk and then they forget the customer. You know? Stoney always said, "There's two ends to every bar. Yeah. Your head should be on a swivel." He yeah. talks about his uh, his uh, kind of mentor, I guess we want to throw those words around, named Jack Beckett, who he worked for at uh, at that old place, the LaSalle, that got held up. Jack would always stand against the back bar and his hand in his pocket, maybe jiggling change. But he was a master at bringing everybody at the bar into conversation together. Sometimes you see bartenders, you walk into a place and if it's busy and that bartender's leaning on the bar, talking to a customer on his elbows... You probably should go someplace else. You might not get a drink for a while because that bartender is so into the conversation. 
with that he's having with the uh, with the customer, he's not going to see it. The head won't come up. He won't give you a wave. You know, he's doing great for that one customer, but not for the bar. And that's really the talent to be able to get up and down that bar um, and give that lip service, I suppose, to everybody who walks like in. Yeah. But Beckett had a talent that no one had. He would tell a lie so that you disagree. Mm. And then another guy would say to two people down, hey, Jack, that's full of bull. And he'd know that, but he wouldn't show it on his face. And I don't think so. He'd have three people discussing, you see, what the lie that he told. He would say he was really an expert at that. And now he'd have them, buy, and back then people used to buy each other, give them a drink yeah. there, you see. You know, everyone bought each other's drinks. That's all gone. All Dead, gone. You know, guy, even by the bar, a guy would walk in if he had a good throw a hundred on the bar, by the bar. Yeah, they have a joke where an Irish guy got a, a job downtown and it, the bar was full. And uh, quite often this would happen. A guy would buy the bar. And then he, he found out that... Uh, uh, Cadillacs. He liked the car Cadillacs. And then he said, uh, a guy said to him, what do you want to be eventually? He said, I want to be a, a Cadillac salesman. He says, why? Because he says, if it works like the bar business, he says, the guy will walk in and there's a guy alongside him and say, give him one and he'll have one yourself. <laughs> He thought that every business operated like the mall business. <laughs> Have one yourself is a comment, you know, that a lot of Irish would give to the bartender. Tipping isn't as big in Ireland, right? I mean, no, back then. No so tipping, you no would tipping. just say, "Have a drink yourself," and yeah. they'd buy the bartender a drink out of their money. Yeah. So let's spend some time talking about Brian's daughter today and some of the events that you offer in the bar for your clients. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Just after coming off saying we don't offer anything to our customers. That's a great tagline. Um, I got into this business because booze, even today, sells itself. I'll remind you that I was a guy showing apartments for a while, too. I couldn't sell those either. I really couldn't sell them. I would go find the roof garden and sit up there and have my lunch. I'd open up the door for a couple of people looking at apartments and say, this is it. This is what you got. And so it's really hard for me to, to sell Ryan's daughter. Um, when uh, we first took over, we had a real problem with that because I don't want to try to come up with a, a catchphrase or a, a way to sell Ryan's. Um, it's not what Ryan's is. And I don't want to, you know, pretend I'm a McSorley's type of bar either. It's been around forever. It's not, it's not that important that we're here a hundred years or 40 years as Ryan's daughter, but that the bar has been here. You know, I mean, that's cute and all, but it really, you go starting to advertise that way. You're no longer what you are, or maybe you're just a caricature of that. So, we do have a wonderful space here, and people come in all the time to the main bar to enjoy the games in the back and the pool table and the Papa Shop machine. That makes more money than the bartender does on Friday and Saturday nights, I tell you. But the real prize is the second floor private party room. I think we've got the best one on the Upper East Side, I'd say, uh, if not elsewhere. A good friend of mine, uh, Walter, who uh, is not here right now, is a kind of a live-in artist who uh, spends six months of the time touring Europe as Vincent Van Gogh. And then the other six months here at home, uh, you know, 
uh, hosting events on the second floor, along with my help and the help of the bartenders. Um, and we do all sorts of events. Some of the great ones that we help uh, uh, put on our uh, Taste of Science was called Pint of Science. They're two separate organizations now, and that brings in people from the uh, community, uh, surrounding community of scientists and researchers who are given an opportunity to share their research outside of the classroom or the laboratory with people who are interested in such things like, uh, and they'll have a theme and give research presentations on that theme. It's great. Everyone has a couple of pints and uh, it's like your mini TED talk on the second floor. Uh, there's a lot of artists around in the in the area. One of our bartenders is a great artist and one of our very dear friends of the bar, uh, John Healy, has, has done all sorts of uh, get-togethers on the second floor of bringing people together from the neighborhood who are local artists. Um, we don't do anything with much of a plan, though. We really depend on the people in our surrounding community who come in, who ask, uh, outside, of course, renting the space for our birthday parties and, and other celebrations. Those are our private parties. But as terms of our events, it often seems to come walking through the door. Again, life just kind of happens. You just got to be ready and willing to go with it. We um, do have trivia nights on Mondays. Uh, we have always uh, wanted to do a good stand-up comedy night, and we've done quite a few of those, but nothing really sticks. Yeah, we'd love to get Stoney on the mic to do some storytelling, but uh, I don't know if he would do it. Um, <laughs> but I do think that, you know, Stoney wrote all his um, stories down, or a lot of his stories down in a book. Um, but if you can see, as you guys can, Stoney actually tell a story and the joy that he gets out of those stories. I mean, he belongs on the stage. There's no doubt about it. But I don't know if the nerves the nerves would hold up. I don't know. Um, Couple drinks in there. Oh yeah, those days are those days are long gone yeah. too. Stoney, you should mention that. Yeah, you've been off it for twenty years. Oh you, yeah, you were a drinker yourself. Yeah, I used to drink. Yeah, yeah, but it's been a while now. Yeah. Fifteen years, maybe. Oh, twenty. Twenty. Yeah. Yeah, a yeah. liver, liver. I was fortunate. It was a German lady working downstairs, and I was telling her I had a pain here. And she said, I have an old Jewish doctor on 72nd Street. You should go visit her. And I went down to visit him. And he said, I, I think I know what's wrong. He said, I'll take some blood. And he said, I'll send it away. But he said, do you drink? And I said, only beer, doctor. I don't drink any whiskey anymore. Only beer. And he said, how much? Oh, I said, a case. He said, in a week? Oh, I said, no. I said, in a day. I said, and on a good day, I said, two cases. He said, it's impossible. Oh, I said, not if you start at 10 in the morning and you drink at 4 o'clock the following morning. I said, it's no problem. <laughs> yeah. All right, thank you guys. Thank you so much for talking yeah, to us. Yeah, that was a session. Boy, yeah. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ellie, and this has been a podcast by Manhattan Sideways. If you're interested in learning more about this business or about the thousands of other small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, be sure to check out our website, www.sideways.nyc, and follow us on social media, at NY Sideways. See you next time. <laughs>